0: Welcome to the Let's Get Entrepreneurial podcast, your go-to resource for navigating the world of entrepreneurship. In this episode, we join Adrian Budden, a successful serial entrepreneur from New Zealand, as he shares his experiences navigating the country's entrepreneurial landscape. Through compelling stories and practical advice, Adrian offers a wealth of insights to inspire and guide the next generation of entrepreneurs on their journey to success.
1: The Let's Get Entrepreneurial podcast is your ultimate launchpad for igniting ideas and skyrocketing your entrepreneurial dreams. Tune in, buckle up, and let's unleash the entrepreneurial spirit within. Your two hosts will be Professor Gary Palin and serial entrepreneur Ryan Budden. How's everybody doing? Oh, look, we're all
2: great, thank you. We've had a really poor summer. Summer's my favorite time of the year. I only got out on my jet ski a couple of times the whole summer. It seemed to be fine when I'm at work and very awful weather on the weekend.
3: Well, for everybody listening, that's my uncle who is a serial entrepreneur talking, Adrian Button. We're really happy to have him on the podcast and talk about how entrepreneurship is in New Zealand and compare and contrast that to what it is where Professor Palin and I are in the U.S., Adrian, why don't we kick it off for everyone listening? And I won't butcher it. Why don't you just give us a little brief history about yourself as an entrepreneur so we can get up to speed?
2: I started out doing a university degree here in Auckland in commerce and finance. Through that, I became what's called in New Zealand a chartered accountant, which is a registered accountant. And you're allowed to give it financial advice and do tax and so on. I didn't enjoy that so much. So I moved into management and as a young fellow, I felt I was bulletproof and could help manage any old business, do anything and worked my way through the system up to including a company that was manufacturing ice cream and making alcohol 600 of staff and so a nice big company privately owned but I was always frustrated by the lack of ability to do what you saw and what you wanted to do at a speed that you wanted to do. I dropped out of that and took on my own business. I have stayed very small With my businesses, I have purposely not grown them into large enterprises. I'm quite happy with that because I can affect everything every day and be usually more or less successful with that. With a country like New Zealand, I think our measurement of success is perhaps a little bit different to other countries in that it's not necessarily a measurement of how much money you have in the bank. The lifestyle... And the life choices that we have are very important. Being able to go out and have family time when we want to without having to apply for leave and have some person who you've never met approve or not your ability to go and enjoy what you want to do. So to me, that's the essence of being an entrepreneur in New Zealand. The downside, uh, of course, is that you don't have the inertia that a corporation would have. And so I've got no idea where my income is coming from past what my order book is. Also, I'm quoting for all of the work that I do. So none of it is assured. All of it is based on relationships, credibility and the work we did in the past. You're only as good as the last time you did work for that person.
3: What are some unique challenges you face as an entrepreneur specifically in New Zealand and how have you overcome those challenges?
2: The greatest challenge I have is credibility. So in New Zealand, to be an owner of a business, the entry level is very low from a government point of view and also socially, it's very acceptable to be working for yourself and your own business. But the difficulty that we've got is you get a lot of people who are very good at their trade and they're hopeless at being in business. We call them cowboys in as much as they promise the earth and deliver something way less than that. And so it taints all of us. So for me, I'm very customer focused. I go out of my way to ensure that what is asked for is what I deliver. That includes simply turning up. If somebody asks to get a quote for a product, I make sure I deliver that. That credibility is really what comes to mind for me as the main hurdle in a country like ours.
0: Adrian, thank you very much for joining us. I greatly appreciate it. I do see a little bit of the family resemblance.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Gary. It's funny, I don't know where Ryan got his height from, though, because Ryan and his brother are both tall but I'll tell you what the rest of the buttons are not. <laughs> I would say that
0: you are much more handsome than Ryan.
3: You've <laughs> got a few more years to develop that handsomeness. I'm working on it. I'm catching up.
0: <laughs> Adrian, the first question that I have is in the United States there is quite an entrepreneurial ecosystem or support system for fledgling entrepreneurs. And there are individuals that are looking to start businesses from around the globe listening to this podcast. I was curious, how is the support system in New Zealand? So for example, in the United States, there's entrepreneurship centers. Entrepreneurs will help other entrepreneurs. It's a very sharing environment. So is there an entrepreneurship support system in New Zealand, or are you on your own?
2: There's no formal system, but there are a number of places that you can go to or reach out to, and both promoted by local council and central government. If you want to look, it's very easy to find a lot of very good advice and either for free or very low cost. There are a lot of people who would answer this question to say, no, there's not a lot. And it's because they don't go looking. I get in my inbox every day, information from people offering good advice, local people, but that's because I've gone looking for that information. It's not a very distinct answer, but the answer is yes, there is great support, but you've got to go looking for it.
0: I think that's an excellent answer, actually. And for our audience listening, basically what you're saying is be proactive in search help. Don't expect people to knock on your door to give it to you.
2: That's exactly correct. Yes. And that is my experience. I think as a
3: general rule of thumb, if you're not willing to go and look for the help, You shouldn't be given it in the first place.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's that credibility thing. If you're willing to be an entrepreneur, you have to go out and be one. You can't expect to be given everything. You know, you do need to go looking for it. To piggyback on that support
3: system, what's the regulatory environment like? Is it easy to start that business up?
2: I think you briefly mentioned that it was. Yes, it is. It's remarkably easy. Banks are very willing to start you up and get you going. I started my business with no debt. And so I think that was even easier. The limits on entry to small business from a government point of view are very minor. Overall, it's an easy market to open a small business.
0: In the United States, there's an expression from a business owner's perspectives, the worst thing you can hear is someone walking in your front door saying, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help you. (laughs) In New Zealand, are there any specific regulations that have come from the New Zealand government that have significantly impacted the development of your growth? And you can look at it from a positive or negative perspective. And no worries, the only ones that are listening are Ryan and I and several other thousand people around the globe.
2: (laughs) Look, honestly, I have never had a government person walk in the door and I've thought, oh, great, you're here. So no, for me, it's a negative. We have a lot of regulation around health and safety and doing the right thing for the environment and so on. And only recently I had a surprise visit from a health and safety department of the government and they effectively closed me down straight away and took my staff away from me and asked them uh, what do we do about things like do we wear safety boots, steel cap boots in the office are we a, a safe environment?" The government people asked my staff they didn 't ask me. We came out okay from the review. I do follow all of the rules so i failed on a point where i did not have a physical folder with physical sheets of paper on the material risks around the materials that we use in that flammable or are they harmful i had it in my computer but of course staff can't necessarily access that so for me i found that pedantic And it just took me a day or two to go through the file and print all the pages out. And now we've got a folder that is completely full of printouts on the the chemicals and things we use. And I know for a fact the staff have never touched that folder. I very much doubt they ever will.
0: That sounds very familiar from uh, governmental regulations that we experience in the U.S. Obviously, many of them are beneficial, but some of them are there because they're there and no one's ever taking them away.
2: I take safety in the workplace very seriously. It's a small staff numbers, but we're very much working together and I take the attitude that I I want them to be as safe or as happy in the workplace as I would be. Things like being careful and not get hurt is very important. But as you say, there's a lot of regulation that, covers off the very small percentage of actions. And I'd like to think that'll never happen around me. I've gone through and you
0: talk about safety issues with dangerous chemicals or hazardous chemicals. And I've read through the list recently of some of them. And one of them that was included on there was liquid paper was considered a hazardous chemical. And I don't even know if Ryan knows what liquid paper is. Now, Adrian, and you you and I will remember, Ryan, it's something that is no longer used, it hasn't been used for 20 years.
3: Well, they're never going to take it off once they put it on, that's for sure.
0: Are there any other regulatory issues that you find restrictive and it could go to fees to get into particular areas, maybe some taxation issues?
2: The industry that I'm in is quite heavily regulated. I'm supplying in the domestic building market. The regulation around those is fit for purpose and longevity. There's quite a lot of regulation around that. It stems largely from in the 1980s and into the 1990s. We went through a period of time where building got a bit out of control, and the cost cutting was too heavy, there were a lot of homes that were built that didn't last. We've got a reasonably mild weather and so on here, so for a house to last 100 years should not be too difficult. But we had a lot of houses failing at the 15 to 20-year mark. And failing, I mean the cladding, leaking, or roofing design was inferior and roofs leaking and therefore creating trouble for the structures and so on. There is a lot of regulation and limits on what's allowed to be done and products that are allowed to be used. As far as taxation goes, though, no, we're reasonably clear on that area. I would say
3: Reasonably unclear would be a mild way of putting it for the U.S.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, frankly, I watch a lot of the home development shows on TV, and it's free-to-air TV, so I understand those shows are generated for interest, but a lot of the buildings that are made in those they just wouldn't get off the ground in New Zealand. A builder wouldn't even consider building in the style and the way that buildings get made.
3: <laughs> so going along with that, what are some like cultural or social or economic factors that have helped shape how you've gotten to where you are?
2: One of the major things we'll touch on a bit more in a little bit is the effect of COVID. Not so much COVID, the health issue, it's more COVID, how our central government reacted and continues to react to that. In New Zealand, we had the whole country closed down when we only had a few COVID cases. So when it first came out, hitting the world, I think in the USA, you were having tens of thousands of cases per day, And we had one case and our central government closed the border and sent all industry home. For the first time in my life, I had a holiday of 104 days, but that was imposed on the fact that we were not allowed to travel. I live on, we call them lifestyle blocks where I'm semi-rural, semi in the country a little bit in my home. And I've got fences and animals, you know, sheep and cows and things around. So I learned to be a farmer. For <laughs> the first time in my life I was farmer John. You can imagine someone like me who works in my own business hard all the time, be sent home for a hundred days, I'd go mad. In those hundred
0: plus days, you still have expenses, both personally and business expenses. How did you survive this? And also how did other businesses that might not be as established as yours survive, and how many of them have closed and are coming back?
2: The central government produced a wage, a subsidy that they paid us for wages for staff. It was on average about half the pay that a low-level worker would receive. That money was paid 100% to staff. So that sort of kept them paying their groceries. As far as the business goes, it was totally on reserves. It was really tricky. At least everybody was in the same boat. All suppliers were lighter on their demands for payment. For me, I had enough cash reserves on the way through. But I I even had my landlord contact me saying if I couldn't pay to tell her and they'd make some sort of financial arrangement going forward. It was really difficult, though, to go for that long was no revenue. And also when we were shut down, we were halfway through a job. Sitting inside my factory, getting daylight coming through the windows and so on, it sunburnt the wood. So it changed half of the job. That was a catastrophe. That was two years ago. We're still suffering from
3: that What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs in New Zealand who are looking to get into your situation and start their own business?
2: You've got to have a passion for whatever you're looking at getting into. I don't think there's any reason to start a business on a whim. So you need to be saying to yourself, this is really what I want to do. You've got to stay focused and grow organically. So what I mean there is you're not going to be hugely successful in the first year. When you start and you end up trading for three months, you go, wow, I'm doing well. But actually, you've got to have a more medium-term focus than that and say to yourself, it'll take me years to come into what I would call success, not months. So it's a slower process than an impatient person would allow for the other thing for me anyway explore opportunities when they present themselves uh, it doesn't matter if it's even on focus of what you actually do but when you have an opportunity don't just flippantly say no i think that all opportunities are well worth having a very good look at that's
3: great advice i think that's really universal i don't know That's specific to New Zealand. Anyone could take that and run with it.
0: Ryan and I have spoken an awful lot about pursuing opportunities and understanding which ones to choose because on the flip side, you can't choose them all because you can only do so many things at one time. And that's the juggling act. When you're looking at other opportunities and which ones to choose,
2: how do you parse them? once the euphoria of the oh wow factor of a new opportunity it's a dollars and cents thing for me I'm the type of personality where I would take every single one if I could I force myself to go actually how much money will I make and how much of my time will it take it becomes a remuneration per hour calculation opportunities are great and they're exciting and so on But at the end of the day, you need to say to yourself, is it actually worth my while?
0: I think that runs in the family, by the way, of getting excited by too many opportunities.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I can be
3: a little bit of a retriever. Definitely an ideas guy.
0: When you're looking at that opportunity, and obviously, if you're running a business, which is taking quite a bit of your time, if you're looking at another opportunity, you'll have so much time in the day. Do you look proactively to bring other people on? to help drive the business so that you can expand your team? Or do you prefer to do it solely?
2: I prefer to do it solely. I think in hindsight, this is something I've thought about quite a bit in the lead up to this meeting. I prefer to do it solely because I like to have control and I like to govern what I'm doing. So it's not that I'm insecure about relationships, but in all the time that I've been in business on my own, I haven't found someone who I would say, you'd make a great business partner. From that reason, that reason alone, I go solely, but I do say my success has been limited by that.
0: That's one of the biggest struggles that entrepreneurs face is when to let go, how to delegate authority in the rapid rate of growth or to slow down that growth. That's a juggling act that's not uncommon at all.
3: It ends up coming up a lot with us, particularly the business partner aspect I mean, you are essentially getting married to that person by bringing them into the business. Any entrepreneur has horror stories on how badly it can go if it doesn't go well. Yes,
2: that's very true. The other thing is I actually work pretty hard at what I do, like so many people do. And so I I have this inbuilt fear of bringing in a partner who doesn't work as hard as I do. You end up having some sort of discussion around, I work hard, you don't, I need to be paid more. That sort of stress, I just made a decision years ago not to pursue. And it
3: sounds like you've been successful enough at it that you haven't had to go down that path. But I would have been
2: more successful if I had actually found a partner who's got the same values and same input as I have.
0: I think a big factor in that is how do you define success also?
2: Yes, it is. Yeah. So for me, family time is important. Driving my muscle car, going out on my jet ski and so on. So I work hard and I like to play hard as well.
0: Another question that I have, Adrian, is all entrepreneurs learn key lessons over the course of time. What valuable lessons have you learned that a young person looking to start out into entrepreneurship would benefit from learning this. And I lean more towards what are some of the major mistakes
2: lessons that you've learned
0: (laughs) that you're willing to share?
2: (laughs) Look, I laugh there because I feel I've made quite a few mistakes. (laughs) In fact, if I was going to write a memoir, it would be a negative book. (laughs) All the stuff that went wrong. As your lead-in comment to the question, that is actually the number one key to my answer in that you're not creating something brand new if you're getting starting an entrepreneur. Go find people who you trust and follow their advice because actually they've done it already. They've done it many times before. Listening and learning are very, very important from people who have done it before. And certainly in New Zealand, most of the suppliers and people who you need to trade with have been down exactly the same path.
0: It's interesting when I'm teaching my students, sometimes they'll be listening to my advice and they're viewing it as if I've read it in a textbook Where in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, wow, that bit of advice cost me $20,000. It only cost you the price of this course. They tend not to relate it in those terms, but that's the truth.
2: Yes, I understand what you're saying. I have a lot of people around me who are, say, trade people in the building area who really look at people like me and say, oh, you make a whole lot more money than I do. You know, how do I get onto that boat? You say to them things like the sage advice that we've just been talking about. And you can see their eyes have just glazed over. All they really want to know is, how do I get a whole lot more money than I'm getting at the moment?
0: Then they want it yesterday versus working for it.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah, we've just recorded a podcast actually about the continuous learning. How important that is. And I think yeah. that's sort of the emphasis of what you're driving home.
2: I absolutely endorse that continuous learning thing. I enjoy learning new stuff, actually, but I purposely force myself to go to courses and go to meetings on an ongoing basis. I don't think that I know everything, and I doubt that I ever will.
0: Are these courses held at the local universities, it chamber of commerce? Is it online? Where do you get access to this, Adrian?
2: I like to spread my outtake on that, all of those. So typically I'd find out about them. We have the local council system. They have a forum where they have specialists who offer courses. It's changing every month. So I keep an eye on that and I'll hook along to the ones that I want.
3: You've talked about longevity being the key and that there's not going to be an overnight success point in this. So how have you changed in your business over the years, whether that's you know adapting to new technologies, new trends? How have things changed for you?
2: The work that I'm doing at the moment and I've been doing for the last eight years or so is quite low tech. My business is involved in creating feature walls and ceilings. For homes by staining or colouring wood. When you come in the front door of a beautiful home, there's often a feature wall that you see, or in the rooms that are used the most, often the ceilings are made out of beautiful materials. I haven't come across a machine yet that can stain wood as good as we can by hand. I'm possibly a bad example. But I'm reasonably old school with the skills that we're using. But having said that, only uh, had a fabulous situation where technology helped recently where we put in a machine that applies a finished coating as opposed to us doing it by hand. And it more than trebled our output. It wasn't a huge capital cost. It was quite a big effort to make it happen, but the output difference was enormous. It was really annoying because for the first month or so, we kept saying, why didn't we do this earlier?
3: (laughs) Oh, I think once a quarter, there's something that I'm saying, why didn't I do this earlier? (laughs) Five years ago, even.
0: As you were speaking about your business, it struck me with your dealing with materials and specifically wood. Is the wood and materials that you're putting together, is it from New Zealand? Do you have to import it? And if so, if there's any importing, what has supply chain done to you pre-COVID versus post-COVID?
2: Yes. I have a policy where I do not use New Zealand timbers. None of them are plantation. They're all old trees that are unique to New Zealand. Um, I don't believe that they should be milled for ceilings and walls, I'm only using imported timbers that are plantation timbers. The supply of them has been restricted after the COVID issue. And for instance, one of the main timbers at the moment that we're doing is Alaskan yellow cedar. So prior to COVID, we could buy very specifically graded timber that it had no knots and no twists and no colour variation. So the suppliers were happy to send... We're a very small buyer. We deal in one container at a time. Now, since COVID, they won't even answer the phone. They have major single supply markets that they're now going for. And so that the quality of the timber that we get is very hit and miss. So we're getting the rubbish put in the container as well as the good stuff. Logistics, getting the timber halfway around the world has become difficult. For instance, a container load of my stains made in Germany historically was costing around 3,000 Kiwi to get here and would take about three months. Now that same container is 14,000 Kiwi to, for shipping and we're at a seven-month lead time.
0: Wow. How do you manage that?
2: With great difficulty, (laughs) we've been air freighting stains. (laughs) That's a very big operational issue for us. I find it really annoying when I read that people are saying logistics are back to normal. The freight situation around the world has normalized. It certainly has not at this end of the world.
3: It's amazing to hear that. You read a lot about it normalizing in the United States as well. But in specific sectors, it's very far away from where it was pre-COVID. The expense of things, suppliers have looked at that and said, look, we can get this up margin. Why would we ever put it back down? The market has proven that they're willing to pay for this. So they're going to leave money on the table?
2: That is so true. It's often a point of conversation for us in New Zealand. And petrol is the number one culprit. When the crude oil went through the roof, the cost of petrol in New Zealand was hard to understand. And we're kind of a long way over that. And the cost of petrol is still at that high level.
0: I just filled up my truck with gasoline. Today, but I had to go to the bank to get a line of credit before I went to the gas station.
2: Down here in New Zealand, you need a tissue as well because you're crying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Adrian, I think
3: those are all the designated questions we had for you. Is there anything that you've been thinking about leading up to this meeting that you wanted to share with us and our audience?
2: We've covered the points that I was interested in talking about. Thank you. I've enjoyed meeting you, Gary, and talking about business, I'd like to put an open invitation that I would continue the conversation at any time with anyone.
3: Brilliant. Well, we're really appreciative of that. I think one thing that makes the entrepreneurial community so special are invitations like that.
0: Yeah, I greatly appreciate it also. And I was thinking road trip, we might have that conversation at a pub.
2: Oh, you are on. <laughs> yeah. The only trouble is my muscle car only has two seats, and I'm necessarily in one of them. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Ryan's young and he can jog along. I don't mind. <laughs> very good. Thank you very much for your time. We greatly appreciate it, Adrian. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Fantastic chatting, Adrian.
1: As we wrap up another episode of the Let's Get Entrepreneurial podcast, we extend our gratitude for your presence and attention. Your dedication to the entrepreneurial spirit fuels our passion for creating this podcast. Check out profspirit.com to discover resources and courses designed specifically for innovators like you. Stay on the cutting edge by following us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and other platforms as it is released. Until then, keep the entrepreneurial flame burning.